The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Welcome to the first episode of the David Cassidy Connections podcast for 2021. Today, I'm in conversation with one of Britain's national treasures. David Hamilton has hosted more than 12,000 radio shows in a career spanning more than six decades. In this episode, he talks about his boyhood dream of becoming a professional footballer and how his broadcasting career took off with the British Forces Network in Germany in 1959. He joined Radio 1, the leading pop station in the UK, and it was where he first met David Cassidy when he was a guest on his show in 1972. The following year, he was invited to compare David's UK tour when he sold out a record-breaking six concerts in three days at Wembley's M. Pool, a record previously held by the Rolling Stones. He reflects on working with David and the impact of fandom on international stars. Here is what Cassidy Mania at Wembley sounded like when David introduced him. And now, at the age of 82, David is set to start a new chapter in his career with a daily show on a new radio station, which he talks about with enthusiasm. But first, he reflects on how it all started. You've now been in radio for more than 60 years. Frightening, isn't it? And I'm still only 45. <laughs> Did you always want to have a career in radio? Well, when I was at school, I wanted to be a professional footballer. All my heroes were footballers. And um, I had a trial at Wimbledon. I always say jokingly, I had a trial at Wimbledon, but I was found not guilty. Um, <laughs> But I didn't. Uh, basically, um, I was I was not a bad player, but I didn't have the sort of uh, rough, tough element that uh, footballers need. You know, I didn't. I I really didn't like getting injured very much, actually. So I was a bit of a coward, I think. So not much of a footballer. I was a footballer who couldn't tackle, a bit like David Beckham. And uh, no, I didn't say that. Um, so once I realised that I couldn't, I wasn't going to make it as a footballer, the next best thing was to write about it. And so I, when I was at school, I wrote a column for two years in a magazine called Soccer Star. It was a, a weekly national football magazine that was delivered to my mother's flat in in Fulham and um, when I left school at 17 I contacted everything was by letters in those days so I wrote to the editor and I said would he be interested in me writing a weekly column and to my surprise he came back and said yes he would and um, he paid me the princely sum of two guineas two pounds and two shillings so that was quite good money in those days I became quite a quite a well quite a wealthy um, teenager and um, 
when I, after I left school, um, my father said to me, you must get a regular job. So I went to the offices of Soccer Star in Cheapside and introduced myself to the editor. And he said, you're not the chap who's been writing for us for the last two years. I said, yes, I am. He said, from the way you wrote, we thought you were about 40. I had to write with a sort of exaggerated uh, maturity. Anyway, it's a, a lesson, tough lesson early in life is that not only did I not get the job, but they dropped my column as well. Yeah, I mean, if I had been the editor, I'd have thought, well, this boy's got a bit of promise if he can write like that at 15 and 16. But they didn't. I don't know what it was, but maybe they were embarrassed that uh, people should find out that one of their writers was a schoolboy. So it was a tough lesson. My father said to me, you must get a job, any job. Um, so I went to the Fleet Street Youth Employment Bureau and I said, I want a job. My father had been a uh, journalist. He was on the Daily Mail. He was a reporter on the Daily Mail. And then um, after the war, he came back and I think he was sort of made redundant. And he got a job on the Sydney Morning Herald. He was running, running the night news desk of the Sydney Morning Herald from Reuter House in, in Fleet Street. So we were a journalist family. And um, having seen my father's uh, life working nights i thought it's a bit of a tough job and the new thing that had come along was commercial television independent television so i went to look to the uh, fleet street youth employment bureau and said i'm looking for a job as a television scriptwriter. so they said well we don't have any writer's job but we are looking for an office boy who will collect and deliver the mail so i thought that's not what i want and my father went home my father who was a wise old owl he said to me take it he said because you will meet people and then when you meet people you might get the job you want so i took it and uh, for a few months i delivered and collected mail from the good and the great like lou grade and val parnell lou grade before he became lord grade and one day I got talking to the man who ran the script department and he said, um, said, you seem like a bright young boy. What do you want to do? So I said, well, I'm a writer. He said, oh, you're a writer. I said, well, what have you written? So I told him about Soccer Star. And by a piece of luck that week, I had a, an article published in TV Times, which I'd, I'd submitted. So um, he said, show me your cuttings. So I took the press cuttings in the next day and I said, oh, by the way, um, I'm in TV Times this week. So um, cutting a long story short, a, a few months later, um, it, they had a, there was a woman writing there called Tessa Diamond, and she had created a new series. In fact, I think it was the first ever television soap. It was called Emergency Ward 10. So she was leaving and he needed somebody to take her place. So he, he said, I'm going to offer you a job as a trainee scriptwriter so he said um you'll have three months training and if you if you make the cut then you'll get the job full time i think uh after three months um he said you've got the job full time and they paid me i think it was about eight pounds a week <laughs> Yeah, of course, this is all old money now, you know. It's like watching talking pictures TV, isn't it, where you see black and white films and somebody says, that's going to cost you a fortune. You say, really, how much? And the other chap says, 500 pounds. Well, in those days, 500 pounds was a fortune. So that was, so that was my, my uh, job at ATV. And um, it was all going well when I got called up for national service in the RAF. And I was posted to Germany near Cologne, which was the home of the British Forces Network radio station. So I went to see the boss there and I said, look, to stop this being a complete waste of time, um, can you use me here on your radio station? So he said, 
well, as a matter of fact, we do need somebody to read the football results. So that was the first thing I did. It was 1959. And after a few weeks of reading the football results, I said to him one day, I said, this music that you're playing, Bing Crosby and Peggy Lee, I said, it's fine for the officers, but the troops want rock and roll. So I don't think he knew what rock and roll was, but he said, um, hmm. he said, what, what do you mean? So I said, well, you know, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Bill Haley and his comets, and uh, Elvis Presley, who, by the way, was doing his national service at the same time uh, with the U.S. Army. I think he was in Frankfurt and I was in Cologne. So I didn't meet him, but I did play his record. So anyway, the, the boss of the radio station said, well, we'll try it out. So I had a show on Sunday afternoon, one of the first radio shows ever to play rock and roll. And the troops loved it. They loved it because it was their music. It was a new generation and it was new music. You know, they didn't want how much is that doggy in the window or feet up, pat him on the popo. So um, that's how I began in radio. And that was 1959. That was almost the first version of two-way family favourite. Well, a lot of the big stars of the time came out to Cologne to get their records played on uh, two-way family favourites because it was the Cologne end. And the first international star I met was Connie Francis. And she came out to promote her record, Lipstick on Your Collar. And what I remember about Connie Francis was that she met, I think, about a dozen of us at the radio station. And she remembered everybody's name. And it was something later in life I, I realized that a lot of Americans are very good at. But can you imagine this? She looked at me, remember, imagine I'm a little scrog doing his national service in the RAF. And she's a big international star. And she looks at me and I've, I've, I've got this drink in my hand. And she said, what do you think, David? And I went, it freaked me out. I thought, Connie Francis just mentioned my name. My hand, my hand shook like this. By the way, it was lemonade that I was drinking. <laughs> I drank in the lemonade. My, I nearly spilt my lemonade. So needless to say, uh, lipstick on your collar got plenty of plays on the radio. Did you ever meet her again? I never met her again. No, uh, but the next star I met after her was Cliff Richard. And um, <clears throat> he came out to promote his record, um, Living Doll. And so uh, I was 20 and Cliff was 18. I got an interview with him. I think it was a lovely guy. In fact, I've interviewed him several times down the years. Never changed my mind about that. I've always, Cliff is the ultimate professional and just a really nice bloke. And what happened to him with the BBC was just dreadful. I mean, for a guy who had an unblemished career like he had for that to happen to it was awful anyway um in 60 years on in um, 2019 a listener contacted me from germany who recorded that interview that i did with cliff richard in 1959 off his wireless and came over and brought me a clip of the interview <sighs> And it was the first radio interview that I had done. It's probably the oldest remaining interview of Cliff Richard. And um, thanks to that listener who now lives in Hamburg and he flew over, I now have a clip of that interview with Cliff Richard. When you listened to it, did you recognize the young man that you were? I think both our voices are recognizable. Obviously they're both younger. Um, my voice, changed a lot uh, down the years in the 60s if i listen to recordings that i did then i sound quite posh 
one that I, I heard myself talking about, television, television. You know? <laughs> but that's how, in those days, that's how people spoke. If you, if you watch, or you watch, again, you watch the old films on television, they all talk about going back to get married. You know, even the, even the Cockneys talk posh. That's what you did if you wanted to get into broadcasting. But by the 70s, when I joined Radio 1, I sort of got rid of that posh thing. And I think what we uh, aimed to have, most of us, was a sort of uh, classless uh, and ac almost with no accent at all. You know, not, not North Country, not London. Um, because, I mean, I grew up at a, I went to a grammar school in Surrey where, you know, we talked a bit like that. You know, all right, John, you know. So I had to get, when I started in radio, I had to get rid of all that. Going back to that recording, have you been able to make Cliff aware of it? Yeah, um, the listener told me that he had played it to Cliff and that Cliff had a copy of it as well. Um, he was a big fan of Cliff and the Shadows and he went to, I think, a concert that they did in Germany, perhaps, or maybe here, might have been in the UK. But um, he managed to get backstage and he met Cliff and he gave him, so I believe that Cliff also has a copy of the recording. Did you feel that when you were working on the British Forces Network that you'd found your niche? Yes, I did. I loved it. And uh, my inspiration had been Pete Murray because I listened to him on Radio Luxembourg. Um, and uh, he had a great voice. He was very witty, very funny. And um, I, I wanted to be Pete Murray. He was my role model. And since then, uh, I've got to know Pete extremely well. He's now 95 and he came down to my house in Sussex. We recorded recently, it's not been released yet, but uh, we recorded a video with um, lots of old uh, and rare music videos. And we did the links here in the garden. Uh, and of course, it was during the lockdown. So we had to be, um, you know, a little way apart and uh, we were, mm -hmm. you know, socially distanced. But Pete is a lovely guy. So isn't it great that my hero has become my friend? <laughs> God bless him. I love him. I love Pete. But could you have ever thought that all these years on, now in 2021, you'd be about to embark on yet a new chapter of your broadcasting career? Well, I don't think you think that far ahead, do you? Um, I, you see, both my parents died very young. My father died at... Um, 57 and my mother died at 58 they both died of lung cancer my father was a heavy smoker and my mother smoked as well but not as heavily as my father so there was no longevity in my family so to live this long um i don't know how it's happened really to be honest it just kind of crept up on me but no in answer to your question i would not have thought that i would have been taking part in a launch of a new radio station at my advanced time in life but it's just one of those things, you know, sometimes you're just lucky and something I had a terrible year last year where I had so many things cancelled. I couldn't go into radio studios. Um, I had a television thing that I was going to do, um, a Pointless Celebrities, and it was cancelled at the last moment because of insurance problems. Um, and then I had lots of uh, lunch talks that I was doing um, and things like that. I had a really nice one lined up for the um, Congress Theatre in Eastbourne, which I was supposed to be doing in April, and that was cancelled way not well not cancelled postponed I think, but way ahead of that because they you know pretty sure that the theatre wouldn't be open. So I had an awful year, and um, out of the blue this offer came along, and it's a new station called Boom Radio, and it's called Boom because it's named after the baby boomers, you know the people who grew up in the 
years after the war, who have been very uncatered for by music radio in recent times. Um, simultaneously, both BBC Radio 2 and BBC Local Radio seem to be dropping a lot of 60s music. They don't play very much of it. And, you know, if you don't play 60s music, you are ignoring all of the, all of the Beatles, the best of the Rolling Stones, and the best of Motown. So you're actually ignoring what everybody agrees was a golden era, era rather of music. It doesn't matter how old people are, whether they like it or not. There are plenty of young people who love that music too. This is a station that's going to play all of that, but it's not going to be in a time warp. And if there are new records that come out, I mean, I did a sort of a trial program the other day and we played Paul McCartney's new single. I mean, he's just cut a new album, cut it last year, did it at home, I think, in his home studio how can you describe this music music with melody i think really music with melody and words that perhaps melody is an old-fashioned word but that's you know it, it has a melody and it has words that mean something to you um and that's what we're going to play you'll be yeah. glad to know there'll be plenty of david cassidy yeah in fact, I am I am planning. We're we're launching on Valentine's Day, and uh, we're each going to have, I think, an hour's program. All the presenters are going to have an hour's program, not necessarily at our normal time. I'm going to be doing lunchtime Monday to Friday, twelve till two. But we're doing a launch program, and I thought in the launch program it would be nice to talk about all the people that I have worked with down the years. Yeah. And uh, one of the, those people, of course, is David Cassidy. And as you know, I, I compared one of his UK tours and um, I tell the story, which uh, I told you and I think you put in your book um, about how he hated the girls screaming. So so that he couldn't hear the girls screaming because he was a good singer. He wanted them to hear. Him. He put cotton wool in his ears and then realized that he couldn't hear the band. So that didn't work. So it was a kind of no win situation. So um, I think we'll uh, play one of David's records in my launch program. That's wonderful. I thought you'd be pleased about that, yeah. I am. What about By it? the way, congratulations on how well your book is doing. Uh, I know that it. I know that it sells around the world. I know these are difficult times and difficult times for people to, to um, get books and distribute books. But um, I'm pleased to hear it's doing really well. Thank you so much, David, and thank you for being a part part of it as well. Well, I'm only a very small part of it. Um, there's a nice picture of me in there, I think, with David. And, uh, you know, I got to know him quite well uh, on the tour. And I got to realise that, um, you know, he wasn't always completely happy. I think, you know, while he was here in the UK, he would love to have seen a bit of the country. He would love to go horse riding during the day, instead of which he spent his whole time holed up in hotel rooms, you know, which is, you know, not great for anybody, is it? You can't exercise, you, you can't go anywhere or do anything that's that's what happens when you have you know supreme stardom is that the um the fervor of your fans sometimes makes like life difficult for you we didn't realize at the time perhaps the impact we as screaming young preteens and teenagers were having on our favorite star and making his life so isolated because when he would come into the BBC studios and you would interview him there would be girls screaming outside yeah. also at Top of the Pops where he wasn't allowed to come into the studio to film and they had to film him elsewhere did you witness similar scenes when you were comparing for the Beatles and the Stones oh yes absolutely yes I mean I 
I did one of the first television interviews with the Beatles in 1963 and also interviewed Brian Epstein, their manager, and uh, Jerry Marsden, his new protege, who sadly died just recently. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, of course. And then uh, later that year, I introduced the Beatles uh, at the Ermston show in Manchester. And um, it was early days for them, so it was not, you know, Hollywood Bowl or big venues or anything like that. I think the show was done in a huge tent a bit like jerry cottle's circus tent you know huge enormous marquee and i remember the girls um stampeding the stage you know and i, I introduced them and i thought cracky i better get off here and i all right for me i jumped off and that was my bit done but the, the, they were just it was early days it was before Beatlemania had been um coined and then the next year i introduced the rolling stones at the palace theater manchester what i remember about that i had a little red mgb sports car that i was very proud of at the time and i parked it at the back of the theater as you could in those days somebody thought it was mick jagger's car and they scratched a, a message to him on the bonnet so for a week i was driving around with i love you mick on the bonnet of my car a week later i had to get it resprayed and the and the yeah. respray cost me more than i got for comparing the show i think it was about 12 guineas i got i think Go, going back to david can you remember the first time you met him was it through uh, dave bridger uh, yeah i think it might have been david bridger was with bell records wasn't he mm -hmm. yeah he was he was the he was the promoter and it would be somebody like david who would bring somebody david bridger that is who would bring somebody like david cassidy to our attention for the first time he would say got a great record for you he must listen to this this guy is absolutely so hot. He's done this, that, and the other, you know. He's been in the Partridge family. He's a big star in America. He's going to be a huge star here. So you put it on, you listen to it with the, uh, it was all vinyl, of course, in those days. Listen to it with the producer and say, oh, God, yeah, this is going to be huge. Must have this as our record of the week. Hamilton Hotshot, I called it on Radio 1. Yeah, uh, then when I was asked to do the tour, I saw, you know, Cassidy Mania at, uh, at Close Up. And, you know, we went around the country. Didn't matter where you were in the country. Uh, it was all the same because he was the hottest teen idol at the time. The only rivals that he had really were the Osmonds. And I didn't work. I did. I met the Osmonds. I met them at a garden party in um, Holland Park in, in London. I think we sort of meet the press and meet the radio people. Uh, but um, I didn't actually introduce them on stage. Later on, I worked with the Bay City Rollers. And there again, you know, you had roller mania. It was the same thing. We did a Radio 1 roadshow, which I compared with Annie Nightingale. And we did it from Mallory Park. The, the Bay City Rollers got on a boat. There was a lake there. And they jumped on this boat to get away from their fans. And all their fans, female fans, obviously, jumped in fully clothed and swam out after them. <laughs> there are all these crazy things that, that happened. You know, the, the guy that you are likely to meet was the sort of spotty-faced teenager, you know, around the corner who you'd think, crikey, you know, compare him with David Cassidy. I mean, David Cassidy was gorgeous looking, wasn't he? I mean, he was every girl's dream. That's what I always say about him. Uh, he was so good looking. He had that wonderful sort of men had in those days, very long hair. And, um, of course, he was, you know, wonderful specimen. He was wonderful shape. So even I as a man, even I as a heterosexual man, could understand that uh, women, young women, would find David Cassidy uh, really. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, it, it's always men 
well, it's always men who are considered to be the more aggressive sex. We're getting into a really serious area here now. And yet men don't go along to concerts and scream and shout <laughs> and throw their knickers on the stage, do they? Like, it's, it's the women who do. Do you think it's maybe it's the unattainable? I mean, that was always the thing with Cliff, wasn't it? Was that Cliff was unattainable. He had a girlfriend at one time, uh, Sue Barker. And as soon as people thought that he was taken, his record sales dropped because um, they said, oh, Cliff's taken. You know, he's not. So, but that sustained him right through his career. You know, the bachelor boy. He's been the bachelor boy forever. People like Cliff, David Cassidy, could I say, you know, Barry Manilow, um, have all had um, huge female followings, not exclusively. Obviously, they would have some there, but I mean, what percentage of a David Cassidy audience would be female? 98%? Most definitely. The only males would be your father or your brother would have gone gone with you. Somebody got dragged along. Yeah. And then, and then later, it would be husbands. And, and they'd be terribly jealous because they would be thinking quietly, I think she likes David Cassidy more than she likes me. <laughs> They'd be right. They are the ones that you marry. That's the difference. That's your fantasy. That's right. And um, it's a phase that girls, young girls go through, isn't it? Where they have an idol and they have, you know, that's their, that's their dream man. And then, you know, probably they settle for the spotty teenager, you know, one, when, he, when he's no longer a teenager, but maybe still spotty. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, but that is the story through through life. I mean, you know, Ricky Nelson, uh, Elvis, Bobby Darin, any yeah. matinee idol as we knew them in the 50s yeah. and 60s. It's Justin Bieber, for example, in more recent times, yeah. and other idols that I probably don't know about. Don't start me on music of today because, uh, well, you know, it'll... It'll it'll finish up being a rant. If I'm going to say something about music today, I would say I hear people calling them soul, calling themselves soul singers. Well, that's okay, but the problem is I remember Marvin Gaye. You know, and who who is ever going to be better than Marvin Gaye? So I'm sorry if I'm sorry if I sound like an old fart. I'm sorry, but you know, to me. That was just the best music. That was that was soul. That was real, real soul music. And you know the stuff that's coming out today. Oh, I suppose is all right. But I think there's a generation of people who don't know Marvin Gaye and don't know the music of that time. It's a shame. So if they listen to Boom Radio, they'll hear it. They will be educated as well as enlightened. Well, I think they'll just hear some great music. I think there'll be people who remember it the first time around, like me, and there'll be some people who are coming to it now. And uh, I mean, I do think that young people do like a lot of that old music. And I'll tell you something very significant. Have you noticed how much of it comes back on TV commercials? How many TV commercials use, you know, wouldn't it be nice by the Beach Boys? That's one example. Um, I can't even remember what the product is, but you hear that a lot. And people who are spending, uh, you know, a lot of uh, thousands of pounds making TV commercials are not fools, and they know the value of using that music. Do you get surprised sometimes? We spoke earlier about the longevity of 
people like Pete Murray, like like yourself, Tony Blackburn. I used to be a member of his fan club in 1968. What happened to your membership? Who knows what happened to it? I mean, Tony, Tony, when he was young, and the, the time you're talking about 1968, he was a very good-looking boy. And I referred to him as, in one of my books as the Cliff Richard of DJs because he, to DJs, was pretty well much the same as as uh, Cliff, and you know, similar sort of age. <clears throat> and he had started out as a singer, funnily enough, with a band in Bournemouth, so he had the same. Uh, background really this is quite funny actually because his his uh, a, his agent was the british uh, agent for frank sinatra his agent's wife i'm just remembering this now was marion ryan remember marion ryan the singer uh, she was a 50s before your time she was a 50s singer yes she was the mother of paula paula barry ryan but um anyway uh, this, this is really quite funny but uh tony's agent got him on a on an album on one side of an album singing and uh, on the other side was matt monroe so what's funny about it was there was matt monroe who frank sinatra said was his favourite singer, who George Martin, the the Beatles record producer, produced, and George Martin called him the man with the golden voice, and on the other side was Tony Blackburn. <laughs> you have to admire his panache, don't you? Confession time, I still have some of Tony's singles. Well, there weren't many, were they? they, no, they there they, weren't many. <laughs> They weren't released. They escaped. There was so much love. Uh, it was one, I think, and uh, I can't remember the other one. They yes, had two, what was the other one called? Two, two um, mini hits, I think. Yeah, so much love and uh, yes, okay. it was so memorable. It's gone. <laughs> yeah, never mind. But what my original question was the longevity of DJs such as himself and yeah. running parallel with yeah, we've got Paul McCartney, we've got the Stones still touring. That's amazing. What has been so special? about the longevity of the DJs and the groups and the singers from that decade when, when, when you start? I, I think, um, I can't, it's more difficult for me to speak for the DJs, but I think where the artists are concerned, I think it has been incredible. I mean, McCartney is still recording, has just done an album, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, the Stones, apart from now, when nobody's working, are still touring. I mean, Jagger jumping around on stage like a like an eighteen year old, incredible. And Rod Stewart, you know, Rod Stewart still recording. The longevity of those people. Eric Clapton is another one. I think he's planning to to do some more concerts at the Albert Hall, which he does very very successfully. Oh. I think the answer, yeah, I I, I often wonder. This sounds a bit cynical, but I wonder how many of today's acts will last as long as that. I think where the one thing they all have in common is talent. That's just just lasted. And the audience has grown older with them and some younger ones have come along to join as well. Um, it's, it has been a phenomenon and incredible. Who do you regard as the best disc jockey? Uh, ever apart were? from me? Yes, of course. <laughs> Uh, I, I was asked this question actually the other day. Well, it would certainly be Terry Wogan on Breakfast because he, he turned uh, the breakfast show into an art form. And um, he was just the right man for that audience. Radio 2 absolutely charmed them in the mornings. Also, I worked with him. I did some blankety blanks with him. I worked with him at Radio 2. A nice man, a very nice man. And that came over on the radio. You know, what he was 
was what you got on the on the radio. Would you uh, like to have taken over the breakfast show when he stopped? Yes, I, I had stood in for him for a few times and I had rather hoped that I would. I think the problem was that I had worked before at Radio 1 and I've been on Radio 1 and Radio 2. And I think my musical uh, taste was possibly a little bit too sharp for what they wanted at that time. So um, I didn't get I didn't get that gig. But uh, an ex-producer of mine has is, is actually mentioned this in my new book, Commercial Radio Days. He said that um, he was my producer and he had produced Wogan or he produced. Yeah. And he said his only regret was that I didn't take over from Wogan when Wogan you know, he left temporarily to do television, then he came back again. So when he left the first time, yeah, that was that was a shame. Um, I'm trying to remember who the other people were that uh, that I mentioned. Um, I know that I mentioned Nick Ferrari, although Nick Ferrari is not a disc jockey. He's uh, on LBC, does breakfast show on LBC. I think he's very good. I listen to him in the morning and I think he is very good. Uh, Kenny Everett, of course, turned DJing in, into an art form, whereas the rest of us were saying, you know, that was and this is. Um, he was doing all his funny voices and uh, his stuff that he recorded. Um, he was completely and utterly different. That was where he was great. Alan Freeman was another great DJ, Fluff Freeman. He didn't say a lot, but every word, you know, that fell from his lips was just magical. So uh, I've been very lucky to work with these people. There were, there were people like Emperor Roscoe. Now, can I do my Emperor Roscoe impression for you? Have mercy, baby. I'm going to blow your mind. Murders your throat. <laughs> Murders your throat. But he was a complete one-off, wasn't he? Uh, Emperor Roscoe. I mean, he came off the off the pirate stations, and he had that sort of hip, you know, jive-talking thing. He was just a larger-than-life character. When I joined Radio One in the seventies, it was full of characters. You know, people like Dave Lee Travis. You know, who, who I I nicknamed him the Hairy Monster. Later on, he was called the the Hairy Cornflake when he got the Breakfast Show. But you know, these were larger than life people, and uh, there aren't there aren't really DJs around like that now. Of the the big personality DJs. Do you think that was a conscious move by the BBC and by Radio One to bring? you guys out from behind the microphone because you had not only the Radio 1 road shows but there was also the Radio 1 football team. Yeah well there was before the football team we used to have race days, uh, motor racing days at uh, Brands Hatch and places like that and you know that was that was such a crazy idea because we competed in races with, I'm not sure if they were professional, but certainly very, very competent racing drivers. And they were, you know, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And uh, any one of us, you know, we could have been involved in a very serious accident. I remember playing in the Radio 1 football team. We had huge crowds. We went round the country. Sunderland at that time were in the second division. I mean, I think they're even lower than that now, but they were in the old second division. And we had the biggest crowd they'd had there all season. We played against Radio Newcastle and the place was absolutely packed. And none of us could play the game at all, really. I mean, it was just comedic. Uh, and then we went to Old Trafford and we played a match at um, Old Trafford. Uh, to, what, a, what a thrill, you know, people who play football like us to run out on the hallowed turf at, at Old Trafford. And Bobby Charlton was playing for the other team. And I always remember this. He, he took a corner kick and he scored direct. He, he was an in-swinger, took it with his right foot 
and it went right into the top of the net. Of course, our goalkeeper wasn't very good. So somebody said to him, bit of a fluke there, Bobby. So Bobby uh, Charlton said, do you think it's a fluke, fluke do you? This guy said, well. So the second half, he took another corner kick, this time with his left foot. He did the same thing. And he, he scored direct again. And, and this time, nobody said it was a fluke. You know, he'd only, st- he'd only stopped playing probably about six, seven years. And he still had that rocket shot, you know, with both feet. Uh, the only thing, I looked at him and I thought, why did he ever stop playing? And I thought probably it was the pace of the game. You know, it was okay playing against us lot. But in, in the, what is now the Premier League, the pace is probably so fast. That's why players retire at, you know, I don't know how old Bobby was, probably about 37, something like that. Uh, it seems nothing, does it? But um, obviously at that time, you're past your physical peak. How, how much of life do you spend past your physical peak if you're finished at 37 oh well there you go but you started out as a football reporter yes yeah but you also have a deep love for speedway and you did take part in an exhibition race with ed stewart yes did you not yes yes i'll tell you how i got into speedway i had an auntie gertie everybody should have an auntie gertie but i had an auntie gertie who lived in um North London, and not far from Wembley Stadium. And uh, she took me and my cousin Ian to see the Wembley Lions. Uh, This is in the post-war years. They used to race on Thursday nights, and the crowds were huge. There were, oh, up to 80,000 people there, you know. And it was the smell, and it was the noise, and it was just the whole thing. And I loved it. So can you imagine my thrill when, in the 70s, uh, Ed Stewart and I were asked to do the announcing for the Wembley Lions Speedway team at Wembley Stadium. I think my dear Auntie Gertie had probably gone by this time, but it would have been the most exciting thing for her to have gone back and for me to have been there. Actually, she would have been gone because when she was taking us in the in the 1950s, she was quite a good age then. She was probably well into her 70s, so God bless her. Anyway, um, we did the season, uh, Ed and I, we shared the announcing duties. And on the last day of the season, the um, promoter said, we'll have a match race uh, with you two in it. So uh, one of us said, yeah, well, well, we'll go around on push bikes. And then the other one said, why don't we have a donkey race? And he said, no, 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 we'll do a proper race on speedway bikes. So, I mean, you know what speedway bikes are like. They're very high-powered machines. They have no brakes. They have a, a clutch and a throttle, and that's it. And I'd never ridden a motorbike before, uh, never mind a speedway bike. I never uh, didn't know the mechanics of how to make a motorbike go. So he said, um, come down for practice at 6 o'clock before the meeting. I think the meeting began about half past 7. And bring a couple of pop stars with you. So we brought Leapy Lee, who was in the charts at the time with Little Arrows, and another guy called Troy Dante, who played football with us. And he was a singer. His his main claim to fame at the time was he was living with Diana Dawes. So anyway, he reckoned that he had actually ridden in a race before. The riders lent us their leathers. It was leathers in those days, not Kevlar's as it is now. Their leathers, their crash helmets, their goggles. And even their bikes. I mean, how, how bad was that? So we were told we had a little practice. We told the most dangerous bit is the start, because at the start, if you let the clutch out too quickly, the bike will go up like this and you'll, you'll fall on your back with the bike on top of you. So we agreed that what we would do is we would have a rolling start. So they, we wouldn't have any tapes. We'd just be pushed out from the, as, as riders are, from the uh, pits. And then you'd engage the, the, the clutch and, and the throttle. And then so you'd be going and you'd have traction. And then we would just go around for the four laps like that. 
and try and stay on. Um, anyway, I was I thought what I, I was actually recording my a commentary of the race for a program I was doing at the time called Late Night Extra on Radio 2. So I had this little tap, tape recorder strapped to my chest while I was doing the recording. So I thought, right, I'll come out last. I'll start last. I'll finish last. I don't want to be a hero. I just want to survive. And if I'm at the back, I can see the others and nobody's going to run over me. Anyway, I'm heading towards the tapes and suddenly I realise they're not up, they're down. And I think... Obviously, plans have changed and nobody's told me and I don't know how to stop. So I keep going and the the marshal is going, the tapes go up and I'm suddenly in front, which is the last thing I want to be. So I go as fast as I can. I said, I'm the commentator and I'm broadsiding into the broadside. They could tell from the sound of the engine, I think I wasn't going very fast. Anyway, one of them went whizzing past my head. Oh. And and he fell off, fell into into the safety fence, and then another one went past as well. And I think he fell off. So I'm now thinking, God, I'm going to run them over. So I had to make sure I didn't. Anyway, I I managed to finish the race, and uh, I think because two of them fell off, I think I actually was the first one to finish. And as I came up, that somebody gave me something. I, it was an onion. I don't know why he did this. He presented me with an onion, my, my reward for winning the race. And I got off and he said, well, he said, you've made history. I said, how is that? He said, that was the slowest ever speedway race in history. <laughs> but I, I, but I, I remain a Speedway fan to this day. And I have Speedway Star magazine delivered every week so I can see what's happening. Of course, there's nothing happening at the moment. They've had a terrible year with no no racing at all. But my son, uh, as my belated Christmas present, is taking me this year to the Grand Prix in Cardiff. Really? How wonderful. He's got two tickets and we are going, I have been once before, but he's taking me and we are going at the end of July. I just hope it's on. Wow. Yeah. Well, be, the, it won't be the, the crowds that they had in Wembley in the heyday, but it will be between forty and 50,000 people probably. Who did you regard as the best speedway rider of your generation, or maybe even of today? Well, when I, was, uh, when I went to Wembley, Tommy Price was the king of, of Wembley. Um, and then uh, later on, um, I loved, I lived in Wimbledon. I used to sometimes go to Wimbledon. So I loved uh, Ronnie Moore and Barry Briggs. Uh, they were great riders. But my, uh, Sam Ermolenko, I liked him. But my favourite speedway rider of all, or who I met, I've met uh, actually a couple of times, was Mark Loram. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. He never got out of the gate. He was never a good starter. So he did it the hard way. And he went round the boards, went all round, right way round. And I saw him once at Ipswich. I went to a meeting at Ipswich and I saw him there and he won every race from the back. And he was so, such an excitement. He was a real racer. I went to a football match at Charlton. There were some footballers there, but there were some speedway riders there as well. And I was introduced to Mark, uh, Scotty Nichols, and um, also uh, Neil Middleditch, who is the uh, who's the team manager at Poole. And I was much more excited to meet them than I was to meet uh, the footballers. And then 
later on I was asked to um, speak at a Speedway Riders dinner at uh, Leicester. I was on the top table because I was the speaker and on the top table with me was Mark Lorem. There with his wife and he, his career ended when he had a very, very bad crash at Ipswich. He never rode again, I think. Uh, he was, it was a shame. By the way, he was a world champion. Yeah. He won, yeah. He was a British rider who won the world championship. So I love, I love Speedway. I think it's the most dangerous. I think it's the most exciting sport. I'm not very interested in motor racing. Or, they go past, that's it. But with Speedway, you see the whole race. And if you ever, I'm sure you've done this, but the greatest privilege you can have if somebody says, would you like to watch it from the center green? <laughs> and if you stand inside that first bend as they leave the tapes and they come into the first bend, my God, that's exciting. Yeah. That really is. Yeah, I, we used to go to Speedway all over the country. There's not a lot of comfort in Speedway stadiums generally. A lot of them are Greyhound Racing Stadium that they they share. But um, it's nice to, you know, have a meal there. But I always found that when you're behind the glass, that takes away a lot of the atmosphere. Yeah. Well, the place you want to be is near the pits where you see all the action that's going on. Um, especially if you're a real devotee and you want to see what are they doing, uh, tinkering around, they're taking a wheel off, they're putting another tyre on it, you know, all that stuff that goes on. And the odd fight, somewhere maybe that first bend as well, somewhere near that first bend. But I've been to loads of speedway tracks around the country and uh, I've never lost my enthusiasm for it. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that what will happen will, is what happened after the war, when I went to Wembley with my Auntie Gertie, was that people have been starved of entertainment and so they went flocking to everything ice hockey became enormous in this country speedway was the second biggest spectator sport after football um, and people were loving to go out and have entertainment and sport and i'm hoping that when all this covid business is over one day that maybe speedway will have a resurgence as well i hope so i remember being really excited at watching two particular riders one was michael lee and the other one was joey owen um i went to bruff park and saw newcastle diamonds uh, years ago um i went to most of the tracks around the country and i agree with you um i fortunately didn't ever see anybody have a serious accent that, that i can think of but I know that they they are there. They do. Now I remember um, hearing the shock news that uh, Lee Richardson had died, and my son uh, rang me, uh, and I got a message on the mobile phone. And uh, he was one of the great riders. I think at one time he rode down at Eastbourne, didn't he? Where I think you 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 covered Speedway down there. And it was just one of those freak accidents. I think it happened in Poland. And um, as you say, the safety is much better now. You have safety fences that people can bounce off. But there were tracks where um, there were just solid wood um, safety fences. And I remember going to Rumford where they actually had a concrete, they had concrete, the, the fence, around it was concrete so if anybody rode into the fence they rode into solid concrete so i think if, if you rode there at romford that's that's gone now of course it's houses now but like so many of these tracks but if you rode there i think the best bet was to hug the white line on the inside don't go near the fence being peter craven was an absolutely brilliant rider i did see him he rode for bellevue and england and he was an absolutely top rider i mean sometimes you i've seen riders actually on television 
actually go over the fence and land on the concrete or whatever it is on the other side. I mean, what I feel about Speedway is that these guys must be mad to do it because, you know, the bottle that they've got to do that. I, I mean, obviously, I understand that young men like speed and thrills. But there's got to be something about speedway riders that it's not it's not a, a job for a normal person. I didn't want to I didn't want to kill myself uh, that night. But what I did notice was uh, my arms were absolutely aching. So my admiration for these guys uh, was even greater than it was before, and it couldn't have been much greater than it was. Radio Luxembourg at one time did speedway results, and I tell you what I did too on my. Um, Radio One show, I used to do in the winter, I used to do football requests so that people could, in those days, everybody wrote in and it was mainly postcards and people would send in postcards and they would they would send messages to their favorite players, their fellow supporters. So it could be Man U, it could be, you know, anybody. And then in the summer, I made it Speedway requests. And we had loads and loads of requests from people uh, asking for, uh, you know, their... For, and after doing um, my stint at Wembley, I did a year at Reading Speedway, 1973. And I it was the year I started on Radio 1. And on Monday nights after my show, my show didn't finish till five. And then I'd hammer down the M4 to um, Reading and uh, the Reading races. Well, the old, the old track was at Tylehurst. And it was just one of those places that had magical atmosphere. And Reg Fearman, who was the uh, promoter there, he absolutely had the golden touch. And uh, it, the place was just heaving uh, to the rafters every every home meeting. And um, I went down there and part of my deal was that I took a, a celebrity with me every week. And it was either um, an actress or um, might have been a one week, I mean, I hate to say this now, I had Gary Glitter. And Gary Glitter at the time was the biggest pop star. It was, it was 1973, the year that he had hit after hit. We had no idea of his proclivities at that particular time. And Bell Records, same record label as, uh, you know, David Cassidy. And I think it was probably David Bridger who said, I'll get you Gary Glitter. And I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll drive, he'll drive around the track. That's my phone going. He'll dri drive around the track on his, Ro on his Rolls Royce. So he did. And the crowd booed him. And the reason that they booed him was that um, the team were beaten for the only time that season. And they thought he was a bad omen. But they loved it when I... I took actresses down, especially young, attractive actresses. And Anders Michenek, who was the number one rider, would take them for a ride on the, on his bike at the end. And could you get a picture in the local paper? You know, it was great, great publicity. And Anders loved it because he'd got these glamorous women on his on his bike. And I and I, I ran them home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They were still talking about Anders Michener. Oh, he was nice, wasn't he? What? Where is he from? So you've worked on something like 15 stations in the past 30 years. Yeah, I think I worked that out. I think I worked, uh, well, 15 commercial stations. Right. Um, as well as the BBC, yeah. Radio 1, Radio 2, uh, and then Capital Gold and various other radio stations, yeah. By the way, by the way, I must tell you, they're all closed now. So I'm, either it's an insecure business or I'm a jinx. Let's take a moment to talk about your latest book. That's a very short book, but yeah. it's, it's it, as I think I said to you before, it's essentially a niche book because it's very much for radio people. 
commercial radio days d-a-z-e and it's the story of my days well obviously days in commercial radio it's you can get it through amazon the the um the what do they call it the ebook but if you want the actual paperback um uh, ashwater press have got it so ashwater press um dot co dot uk i've got it there it's very niche this book my other book um the golden days of radio one that's more for a wider audience this is re- this book is really mainly for radio people i would say what gave were, you the idea to to write this just before lockdown uh, a chap from uh, radio 210 in reading came over to see me and interview me for a podcast but bit like this and uh, he said um why don't you do a book about your days in commercial radio so he came up with the idea and uh, so i did and i wrote it in lockdown it was a good time to write because you know you couldn't do much else so i sat here and um it's quite a uh, it's not a very long book so um i it's it's nothing not like the tome that you've done about david cassidy that's how many pages have you got on that book 256 yeah that's all. what i liked about your book so we talk about your book for a second now was the, the the way that you spoke to so many people fans of david cassidy uh not just from this country but from around the world i mean you did enormous research uh, and obviously contacted different people and um i thought that was you know it was great i think i hate to say it i think you'll sell a few more copies than i do (laughs) well people wanted to talk about him and i started this before he passed away um probably 2014 i had the initial idea but it wasn't until around 2016 that i had the time to devote to it and already knew a lot of fans and I knew they had lots of stories, but whether they wanted to actually share them in print was something else. And I think his passing made people reflect more on their own mortality and it made them think even more about how important he was to them, how he touched their lives. And, well, you know, having met him quite a few times, but he had a charisma that touched so many people in so many different ways. And we're not talking about um, being a teenager in love. You're talking about the impact his music had on a whole generation. And when somebody has the ability to change lives, that's a huge responsibility for that individual person. I think he helped to form men and women into the people that they became their influence on your life impacts your whole life and everything you do and the sort of person that you become is reflected back in your first introduction to them and their music i think he left an incredible legacy that i think you uh, encompass that very well in your book yeah i just wonder what your observations were you know, did you see him change over the years from being this godlike yes. figure for, for TV? Yes, I think, I think so, yes, yes. I think, I'll tell you what I think. I think probably that his what he really wanted to be was, an, and indeed was, was an actor, and that he became a pop star by chance. And uh, although it brought him enormous success and, you know, financial success and so on, I don't think it was probably what he really most wanted to do. Although, as you said, he was a very good singer with a, you know, terrific vocal range. Um, The thing that struck me about him when we worked together was I didn't feel that he was terribly happy. That was not to say that he wasn't nice and wasn't pleasant and, you know, a very nice person to work with and to be with. He was. But I I got a feeling that he... 
this was not really what he wanted. And I think the problem was that, you know, when you when you become a product, if you like, you become an, an entity that somebody can make a lot of money out, out of, agents, managers, and so on. You don't have sometimes perhaps an awful lot of say in what you do. It People might think you do, but you might be told you're going to do this tour of the UK, you're going to do a European tour, then we're going to come back. And so you get onto this kind of work machine where you're earning all this money, but when you get a chance to spend it, when you get a chance to enjoy it, you don't. Everybody knows that you have this time of being hot and everybody knows um, even when you're younger you know really it's not going to last forever <clears throat> you know the next uh, new thing the next big thing will come along and it'll be somebody else it, that's that's how it is for everybody uh, I think that uh, he, you know he had to make hay while, while he could but it was perhaps not the happiest time of his life I'd like to think that when it quietened down a bit perhaps he was able to have a happier time I, I just don't think that you see, everybody would think, wouldn't they, that if you're a huge pop star, you've got millions of people who idolize you and adore you, and you're earning plenty of money, um, that you're going to be incredibly happy because after all, isn't that everybody's dream? But when you actually live the dream, you might find that it's not everything that it's, it's cracked up to be. And it's like everything else in life, you know, there's always a downside. I'll give you an example. For somebody, it's a bit like David at the height of his fame, but for somebody who is a workaholic and working very, very hard, being very successful, making a lot of money, usually something suffers and it's usually their private life. Because for the person that they're with or the people that they're with, they don't have a lot of time for them. They're always away, they're always on the road, they're always working. So there's always a downside of everything. No, nothing is just sort of, you know, for somebody's life is wonderful and somebody else's life is awful. Um, I know that's hard to believe, but I think, you know, working closely with him, that was the feeling that I got. The feeling that I had when I had a little bit of what he had, which was that, you know, I was well known and people knew my face, my voice. And, uh, but when you have a little of it, I think that's you can enjoy that more because it, it's not all invasive. It doesn't take over your, your whole life. So you can have it and then you can go home and close the door and not have it. And I think for him, it was probably too much. I think probably you could say the same for Elvis. Look at Elvis's life. You know, in many ways, it was not it was not happy. Look how he finished up. Uh, but, you know, fame is quite a difficult thing. Extreme fame is quite a difficult thing for people to handle. Whether you're a pop star or a sports star. Well, well a sport life is usually a short life um, and people retire very early. The problem with sports people is knowing what to do when uh, they've kicked the last ball or ridden in the last race, you know, um, and some become uh, managers, some become pundits. But for, for all of that, the vast majority of them never hear again. The only thing is now, of course, that money has changed. People can make enough money in, let's say, 10 years not to have to work again, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, oh, David, it's been fascinating this afternoon. It's, it's been great to, uh, talking to you. And I hope that uh, this gets a wide audience and I hope they're, I hope they're all amused by it and uh, in some way and I hope they enjoy it. Although I thought my commercial radio days were over, 
Uh, it seems they're, they're not. There's still some life in them. Are you going to re republish your uh, makeup book? D D David Hamilton's Beauty Tips for Beauty Women. Tip. I've, got one, I've got one of them here. I think the company that uh, published that is long gone. We had a, a feature on the programme called Keep Young and Beautiful. <clears throat> we had that jingle. I mean, it would be totally politically incorrect now. Keep young and beautiful. It's your duty to be beautiful. Keep young and beautiful if you want to be loved. I mean, what woman is going to accept that, that uh, sentiment today but at the time you know the world was different and um what happened was that listeners sent in their beauty tips and we sold them back to them in book form <laughs> quite a clever trick really yeah oh that's clever they don't they don't make them like that anymore no they don't they don't no and they don't make them like you anymore oh well thank you very much louise that's very kind just a reminder if you would like a copy of david's latest book commercial radio days it is available in paperback from ashwaterpress.co.uk or you can find a copy in kindle format through amazon you can also read further recollections from david in my book cherished david cassidy a legacy of love available through amazon and all major bookshops in store and online <laughs>